Lord, we uh, bless you for beauty like that. And Lord, as you reveal yourself through beauty. And now, Father, as we think about your word, we pray that you'll bless this time in it. Speak to us and guide us in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Great Awakening uh, was, happened in the mid-18th century, and it was a time of remarkable spread of the gospel across England and then across the colonies. Uh, the two main figures uh, known in the Great Awakening are uh, George Whitfield and John Wesley. And uh, one of the things they did uniquely was they actually went to the common people. They went out in the fields. You know, they, they preached to the workers, and it was this remarkable thing. As people were turning to Jesus, we actually uh, sang a hymn earlier from Charles Wesley. Well, the very purpose of those hymns were so that the people, these common people who didn't read and were workers, could actually learn the truths of the gospel. You know, they can, it's, you know, it's incredible theology in those things, because that's how people would learn it. That's how they'd grow near to Jesus and, and worship him by memorizing these hymns. Now, a great tragedy that happened in the Great Awakening is these two figures had a stark division, and they divided. And actually, Charles Wesley even ended up going more to George Whitfield's side, which all added to the tragedy of it all. And what they really divided over was a, uh, over theology. And you could argue, you know, is this Calvinist, Arminian? You're like, what does all that mean? At the very heart of it was really a debate over the responsibility of man. How much is really in our part versus a sovereignty of God? Now, both camps believe in the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God, but how that really plays itself out in our lives. And, uh, you know, uh, John Wesley began Methodism, right? And given that word, you can kind of feel a bit of his, his, um, philo- his theology, right? Methods. There are ways to be holy. There's disciplines to have in your life. In fact, to sing hymns, he, you could look it up, John Wesley's method of singing hymns. It's an entire long sheet on how you're supposed to sing, how you're supposed to sing corporately, not too loud, not too light, with your heart, intention. He was one of these kind of guys. I wouldn't have gotten along with John Wesley whatsoever. I'm more of this kind of laissez-faire, man, let the, let the spirit move you. You know, even like, no, boom, 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 you know. But with all that kind of method, there was a point where, you know, George Whitfield and others saying, where's the grace of God in this? And it's turning into a works righteousness. Is it you know, how does that work? And so uh, today, and that, that division is still very much present even today. And um, we're not going to, our passage today in Philippians is um, kind of go across these waters. We're not going to go deep into those waters. We're more going to skirt across the top. But this very um, question is far from this distant theological issue. It is something that is very, very present with how we understand what it means to follow God right now, how we understand God's challenge and call to us to walk, and why. So it's right at the heart of it, and that's what we're going to look at today as we continue in this pursuit of joy in the book of Philippians. We're still, we're in our third chapter in chapter three, and perhaps no chapter in Philippians more pictures this pursuit in chapter 3. As he said, we've, we've done a couple, chap, a couple sermons on this already. He says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, 
for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And we've talked about this idea, this priority you see here, to set this in front of everything else. Everything else I count as rubbish to knowing Christ. And last week we talked about what does it mean to know Christ. And as he goes on in this passage, he brings up a very uh, interesting metaphor, which I actually think is somewhat controversial. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And the word to really catch here in this phrase is this word prize, to win the prize. That word is a very specific word, which almost in every context it's used in the Greek, it's referring to like the prize of an athletic contest. So you can really see that's the image here in the race, forgetting what is behind, straining forward to what is ahead. He is in a race. And you can actually even see it in the other time Paul uses this, this word in Corinthians. It's very clear that's the context. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. This is kind of what he's referring to here. Forgetting what is behind. You have this picture, he's straining forward, not thinking before. He's in that race, and he has his eyes on the prize. And he says, that's what the Christian walk is. The Christian walk is a run is a race with your eyes fixed on a prize. What does that make you think when it says fixed on a prize? This idea of reward, that there's reward out there. And then, I mean, many of us, I don't think, like the idea of thinking following Jesus is about achieving a prize. Do you like thinking about it like a race with a prize at the end which we are striving towards? It's a very controversial idea. We don't talk about this doctrine of reward very much these days, because people don't like it. But you know something? It's actually there quite a bit, this idea of doing things for a reward. Timothy, it says, um, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. I thought it was all those who have been believers in Jesus. No, it's all those who loved his appearing. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his reward according to his own labor. Revelation, he warns the churches, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. To the one who is victorious, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne. Jesus said, be glad and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is second when you get persecuted. For great, uh, 
For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their father used to treat the prophets. Saying when you've been persecuted for your faith and stood for it, for his name. The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he'll reward each person according to what he has done. So, is this troubling at all? If it's not troubling you at all, it's because you're not paying attention or you haven't really thought about the implications of this, which is all right. It's hot. (laughs) Snooze out. But for those who are paying attention, this should be troubling in your kind of theological world. And can't you begin to feel what made Wesley and Whitfield divide? You tell Wesley loved these verses, right? He was into, this is good stuff for him. Whitfield's going, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't we, wait, wait, aren't we confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus? Isn't, isn't God doing this work in you? Where, where's grace in the midst of this? Where's the unconditional love of God? Wait, 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 I, I thought he loves us and he cares, it sets us apart and, and God's at work in us. This makes it seem like I need to strive to go get this. What's going, you know, which is it? How how do I work this thing out? And this has divided the church. You know, we don't earn our salvation. It's a gift, right? A grace of God, a, a gift, and God does his work in us. Now, I think when it comes to complex issues like this, when you get really close to it, it's often very, that's where a lot of the division happens. But I actually think from farther away, it's actually kind of clear. So I actually don't want to dive deep. I want to stay, actually go back up to it. Because so I think when we back up, we can see what's true. Like, for instance, if when you back up from a distance away, you can see and say, that's a forest. Or even it's a forest of oaks. And you're true, and it's right, and there's no controversy. But when you start talking about, uh, well, what kind of oak is it specifically, and how many need to be oaks for it to be a forest of oaks, and how many are actually there, and you know, how old is this forest? Now you start dividing. So today we want to back up this thing and look at the oak forest of this idea of reward, because I actually think it's a really critical... Um, I, th- I think this understanding this is not this, again, interesting theological idea. This plays a role... Um, intimately with how you follow Jesus today, how you think about following him, how you think about the call he makes on your life, and the kind of challenge he puts before us. So I think it's really important. So as we talk about it, now okay, so let's back up again a little bit. Say, what, let's go back to that problem. What is it about it that makes it problematic to think about a prize and a reward? I think one of the problems is that it can feel kind of mercenary in our walk, Right? Doesn't it feel kind of strange to think that I'm doing all this stuff to get something from God? That feels kind of strange. And what happens when you feel like all these things that we probably challenge you to do when you're sitting in church, you know, to read the Bible, to pray, to serve, to witness, to do all these kind of things. What happens when you set that whole thing up to do it? I'm going to do all these things for God. What happens oftentimes? I find that oftentimes you set up this whole thing, you don't quite pull it off, right? This is one of Whitfield's point, the sinful nature. And you usually feel kind of guilty about it. You feel um, ashamed of your inability to really do what he asks. You feel a sense of condemnation from God. And what happens if you actually do succeed? When you actually, man, you, know, you are really doing all these disciplines and everything he set for you to do. I think it usually results in a wonderful feeling of pride. And, and usually accompanying that pride is a sense of judgment towards others 
because you're doing so well and so you feel the ability to rate how everyone else is doing in their walk and how whatever else should be doing. So you ask yourself, let's see, if, what's the fruit of this approach to our spiritual life? Shame, guilt, condemnation, pride, and judgmentalism. Maybe this is not a right approach. You know, if you're going to judge a, uh, a tree by its fruit, there must be something wrong with the way we're thinking about it. But what if we go to the other side, right? It's just all the grace of God, right? It's, God loves you. He cares for you. All this sort of work stuff that you need to do. You know, it's just let go and let God. You know, God will do it. God's going to accomplish his work with me. You know, and I'm just going to lay on that couch, play video games, and give myself to the Lord. You know, God, use me however you want. Pass the bonbons. You know, something's really wrong here, right? Well, what we're talking about here is really a, what's really called the doctrine of, uh, it's really sanctification. If you remember, we talked about uh, salvation as being these three things, justification, sanctification, glorification. We preached about this a month or two ago. And justification, that's where God saves you uh, from the penalty of your sins. He forgives you because of what Jesus did on the cross. And then the last one, glorification, is when God finally takes you and gives you a new body and changes us and makes, sets the whole world right, right? The middle part is what's happening right now when you give your life to him, and then he begins this work of making you holy. And what we're talking about here is what does that life of sanctification look like? Sanctify is to make something holy. How is it that God transforms us into the image of Jesus? Because it's not just about forgiving you. It's forgiving you, and then you become his child. Then he wants to grow you up and to be who he's intended you to be. You know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But then it says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. So God says, and remember, working out means like sort of produce from your salvation what you, and fear and trembling is like worship language. You know, uh, now let your salvation produce what God wants it to, essentially. And so when we think about reward, I think the best way to think about reward is think about the idea that um, there's a natural reward that happens for something you do, a natural consequence, natural fruit from it. For instance, what's the natural reward of someone who practices piano? Right? That what's the reward of practicing piano? Being able to play piano well. You know, the, the person who can, or, you know, the reward, you know, um, you know, not only did Matt and Blair play beautifully, but they got to, in some ways, have the reward of us being blessed by listening to it. But that was the, the natural reward of the hours and hours and hours and hours of work. You know, what's the natural reward of, you know, working out and trying to eat right? You know, the natural reward is a better bill of health, right? You're a healthier thing. It's a natural reward that plays with it. You know, what's the, uh, you know, if you're talking about if you're working, right? If, you're, if, you, if you commit yourself to that job and you, you work hard and you try to understand it and to learn it, to do it dil- diligently, the natural reward is that you'll be promoted, that you'll be given more responsibility, more decision-making. You know, it's the natural thing that happens to it. And so when we talk about our reward in our Christian walk, what's the natural reward of a life spent trying to know Jesus? That you would know Jesus. You know, a life set apart to serving him, that is that reward. You know, it says this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. 
You spend your life desiring to know him, the truth of it. You know, that, that, that's taking hold of that which is really life. This stuff, this is not life. That is real life. Take hold of that which is true life and come to know him and uh, understand him and be freed from the, the chains of this broken world and your broken mind. Be set apart for what you really meant to be. That's the natural reward of that life set apart for him. You know where it says, uh, the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That ultimate reality that we are going to be, we're going to be with him, see him face to face. We're going to be out of this broken world, out of these broken bodies. Live for that which endures, that which is real, not the stuff that is passing. The praise of man, it's worthless. Don't live for that. Live for that, you know, which is real. And so in some ways, he goes, that's the prize. The prize is you, you get that which you have longed for. Now, my guess is if you hear that, you think, okay, I get that, but how is that different from the thing that caused me all that condemnation and guilt and pride before? Isn't that the same thing? You're still saying I need to do all this different stuff? Well, one thing about when we talk about consummate rewards is it's not the stuff you do. It's as important as to why you do it. Like people uh, learning music, right? Just uh, the reward of being, having the joy of playing music. But what about if what they want is fame? Or what they really, they're, really, they're, they're practicing so much because they want praise and they want fame and they want to do better than others. What's going to be the reward of that? The fruit of that? There's going to be fear. There's going to be worry about others. There's going to be anxiousness. All these different things that aren't the joy of it. Or you ever been in work, you know, as somebody, somebody who's just, just trying to live to make money. What's the reward of that? Well, they'll have their money. I remember this, uh, I can't remember the individual's name, but, you know, he was a guy who had a, you know, he was just a ruthless worker, was brutal to his employees, did nothing but to try to make as much money as he can. He bought this uh, huge mansion in Malibu, has a stroke, ends up spending the last decades of his life alone in his little mansion which was more like a prison, meditating on his accomplishments and material items in isolation. That was the reward. You know, so there's a, when you think about, when your reward, you can almost feel the reward, and your reward is fear, condemnation, pride, judgmentalism. You're not actually working towards the right thing. You know, it's not a life filled with, uh, you're, not, you're not driven because geez, God loves you and into worship and praise of him and in knowing him. Something's off in what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I think there's a second thing that bugs us too, is it's not just that we do things for the wrong reason. I think one of the reasons this idea of reward um, hits us so wrongly is a bit of a cultural thing now where this whole kind of culture of entitlement, we have this strange sense that we want things without actually having to work to get them. You know, we want to, um, you know, work, right? You want a, a voice at the table, but you don't want to put in the work to get the wisdom to make your voice valuable. You want to be promoted, but you don't want to, you know, actually work to do it. You know, you want to, uh, you know, you want to have great friendships, but you don't want to commit yourself to the time it takes to actually do that or to serve another, but you just kind of want that stuff. In our spiritual life, you know, we want to be people who really understand our faith and can defend it and share it, but we don't want to really want to spend the time looking at the Bible and wrestling with it. We want to be people who understand how to pray, but we don't want to spend time in prayer. We want to be people who can, are led by God, but we don't want to spend time listening to him. You know, so there's this idea that um, 
and, and it's a weird thing. In our, we're actually built by God to want to work to accomplish things. You know, we don't function well without purpose. You know, there's, and, and that can become twisted and we drive ourselves for the wrong things. But I think, don't you feel like you're most fulfilled and most joyed, uh, filled with most joy when you have a goal set before you that you are working towards? It's part of what we're made like. We don't operate well otherwise. But the problem is in this broken world, we shoot for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> we charge with all our energies towards other things. And he's saying, no, put yourself here. Take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of you. Take hold of that which is of eternal value and meaning, the thing which transcends all that stuff. And it's not supposed to be a, a fearful burden, right? What does Jesus say? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will do what? I will give you more work to do. No, right. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Learn from me, for I am humble of heart, for my yoke is light. My burden is easy. And you'll find rest for your souls. The idea that we will all take on these yokes, right? You're going to take on a yoke in your life. What yoke are you taking on? What's going to be the fruit of that? Jesus says, take my yoke. That's the yoke you are meant to have. March in this way, and you're going to find rest for your soul. Every other yoke, when you're, if you're walk with Jesus and you're thinking, I am, I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do that, and you feel that either that pride or that judgmentalism or that condemnation happening, you don't have, you're not wearing Jesus' yoke. You're wearing a yoke of your own creation. That you're actually, maybe you are trying to justify yourself or whatever thing that's driving you. But you're not saying that he has set you apart, that he has loved you, that he has cleansed you. You know, I was thinking about um, George Whitfield and John Wesley again. And, you know, um, after their division, sometime after, someone came to George Whitfield and said, um, do you think you'll see John Wesley in heaven? And he said, no. I think he'll be too close to Jesus. Meaning that John Wesley will be receiving and enjoying the reward of a life sent, spent in pursuit of him. You know, that's the reward that's set before us. That's the prize of that uh, heavenly calling. He wants us to make that our ultimate desire, our ultimate uh, thing we hunger for, the thing the take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of you. And how does communion fit into that? Well, in this, in this broken world, this is a time to reform that covenant, right? It's to renew our covenant with him. It's like, uh, I think about that race analogy. There's all these little stations along the way by which people can get drink and get some you know, energy food to keep them going. In many ways, in our walk with Jesus, this is our help station, our little station to come to him again, acknowledge our weakness, acknowledge our need, confess our sins, commune with him, be re-strengthened and re-sent forth to go forth. He knows we're weak, right? He knows we're in need. We can know intellectually to chase after that reward, but the brokenness of our body and our weakness works against that. And we are constantly having to long for his presence in our life, long for that grace which will change us and give us the strength to carry out that walk. And really that's what this table is, a table of renewal.
So let us go in quiet before him. Acknowledge your weakness to him. Acknowledge your need. Acknowledge about where you're right now and this idea of what he has set before us and how we're running that race before him. And our, our eyes are fixed on that prize. Jesus said, come to me. The reward of coming to him is being with him. Come to me, all you that are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty.